Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I think I see some dads. It was fun to watch Jason wrestle the three Heinrichs boys in the front there for a while. Kudos, kudos. My name is Audrey. I have the privilege of being the intern here at Artisan Church and um, to help the team out uh, with some stuff while Scott's on sabbatical. I think I saw a post recently that Leo just bought like one little, there's Tasha. Yes, what is it? Little lady? So baseball, baseball, go sports. He won baseball. I do know that the abs are up by two again lightning in the Stanley Cup series, so that's that's the sports I know. Um, <laughs> I'm Audrey, and um, yeah, so we're in the second Sunday of Ordinary Time of the, litur- of the liturgical calendar, and that makes up the second half of the liturgical calendar year, which is just the historical Christian calendar that kind of marks the seasons. Lawrence did a really good job last Sunday of starting us off with Trinity Sunday, where we recognize each person of the Trinity that makes up the Godhead. And it's the season from July through the end of November till Advent starts again, where we look at stories of God, usually specifically Jesus, uh, interacting with the world and with his people and those very human stories. So we had Melody read out from the NIV version from Luke um, 826 to 39 this morning. She did a very wonderful job. I don't know if I see her anymore. Oh, there you are. It was excellent. You could read, you could do the whole audiobook thing if you ever need to. I would listen to that. It's very lovely. Um, so I'm going to be reading to start us off from the CEB, the Common English Bible Version, and that's what I'll be preaching from. Um, so I invite you to read along with me on the slides. So Luke 8, 26 to 39 from the CEB. Jesus and his disciples sailed to the Gerasenes land, which is across the lake from Galilee. As soon as Jesus got off the boat, a certain man met him. The man was from the city and was possessed by demons. For a long time, he had lived among the tombs, naked and homeless. When he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down before him. Then he shouted, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had taken possession of him, so he would be bound with leg irons and chains and placed under guard. But he would break his restraints, and the demon would force him into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion. He replied, because many demons had entered him. They pleaded with him not to order them to go back into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, and the demons left the man and entered the pigs. The herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. When those who tended the pigs saw what happened, they ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully dressed and completely sane. They were filled with awe. Those people who had actually seen what had happened told them how the demon-possessed man had been delivered. Then everyone gathered from the region of the Gerasenes 
and asked Jesus to leave their area because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and returned across the lake. The man from whom the demons had gone begged to come along with Jesus as one of his disciples. Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell the story of what God has done for you. So he went throughout the city proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. So I'll be honest, I have been chewing on this for about two weeks now because I don't really know what I think about demons and demon possession, and I certainly know even less how to preach about it. So I'm just going to start there and admit what I don't know, and we're going to lean in with some curiosity. What's especially interesting is how does this apply to ordinary time? How is this story ordinary? This is not something I encounter every day. This is not part of my ordinary life. And I'm guessing unless you work in particular fields, it's probably not yours either. So I did a lot of research and I also just sat in my imagination and prayed on it a lot. So just for any little kiddos or parents or anyone with a graphic um, visual memory, just heads up, we're gonna have some pictures. Um, and also I'm gonna not give spoilers for any particular popular TV shows right now. So my, uh, my imagination first went to Stranger Things, the new season. The Netflix TV show that's most recent season has also brought about the revival of Kate Bush's music career. She's been all over the radio. Anyway, so the upside down place is kind of what I imagine when I read of the abyss where the demons come from which they reference in verse 31. And Vecna just honestly scares me so much that I like fast forward through most of those scenes. I'm not too proud to admit that I find it scary. Um, yeah, so that's I'm just like, that's what comes to mind when I think about this. There's a lot of stranger things, upside down, the abyss, Vecna, possession, all that stuff. Um, the second place my imagination took me was to wonder what our equivalent of a herd of pigs would be today. Most of us are not, you know, agriculturally based in our careers, and we maybe don't understand the economic impact of like an entire herd of pigs running off a cliff, um, or the grief that someone would feel. So the best I could think of um, was maybe like a fleet of self-driving Teslas with no people in them driving off in a cliff into the Pacific. <laughs> That would be economically devastating. We would be very sad. We would be shocked and in awe and overcome with fear, just like the people were. Um, the only hiccup there is that pigs were obviously considered unclean uh, to choose at the time, and Teslas are considered clean in comparison to other cars. So I'm aware it doesn't totally work. The third place my imagination went was to my experiences in other settings and cultures. Um, my parents were born and raised in South America, Paraguay and Bolivia specifically, and I spent four years in Bolivia myself as a kid. Now, so despite being a white German heritage Mennonite woman, with the generations upon generations living in South America, we've adopted some of that culture. So when someone who is indigenous Bolivian says, hey, there's a demon in that shrub, don't go near there. We just believe them. There is no questioning it. We're just like, okay, got it. And like, maybe it's a rattlesnake nest or maybe it's something else, but we're just gonna stay away. We're gonna believe that and trust it. Um, I had a similar experience when I was in Australia with youth, youth with a Mission or YWAM. We had some Pacific Islander partners prep us for any potential missions we might do in Papua New Guinea. And they said something very similar that if 
you know, someone says there's a demon in the water or the creek, just believe them. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't argue with them. Just believe them. So this raised a question in me. How do I preach about evil or unclean or demonic spirits, all of which are the Greek terms used in the passage today, in this predominantly Western colonized community and cultures, while still honoring different cultures and my different experiences. This brought to mind something that the Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred, who's the director of the Indigenous Studies program at the Vancouver School of Theology at the UBC campus, he mentioned in a guest lecture that he did in one of my classes recently, that Westerners, colonizers, tend to think mathematically and scientifically. We like to think formulaically and with suspicion and try to rationalize things. And if we see something we don't understand, our impulse is to explain it based on what we know scientifically, based on what the experts have told us. He shared that in his indigenous tribe from the prairies and the others around him, they tend to think more in terms of narrative and people. Not that they're never suspicious, but when someone tells them a personal story, they don't try to dissect the details and figure out what makes sense or what's rational. They listen for the point of the story. They listen for the experience and they honor that. So I acknowledge my desire to figure out this passage rationally and try to figure it out. Um, but leaning into what Ray Aldred said, I just did some more research instead on how demons are used in narratives and in literature. This brought me to Russian novelist Dostoevsky, who uses this language a lot throughout his works to describe any force he saw as destructive, which generally was the political or nihilistic moral forces. Um, any force doing evil in his view was demonic precisely because it was evil. So if it's doing something bad, then it must be evil. Anything that is not aligned with God and God's redemptive, loving, good work in this world that he made and called good, anything that's opposed to God and what he's doing can be called evil because it's in opposition. That's according to Dostoevsky. So think of the phrase, they were plagued by their demons, so they went to drink their woes away. That's very Dostoevskyan in literature. A theological dictionary told me that the term was initially found in classical Greek literature to describe um, like small gods, lowercase g, or divine beings that could be either angels or demons, and they exist on the spectrum between good and evil, and they're convenient explanations for why bad things happen in the world. So the early Christians and the Jewish writers adopted this kind of language um, to refer to any evil forces in the world, anything generally in opposition to God's goodness and God's people. So we have that explanation in the back of our heads now of, of what this word is. Um, if you come from maybe like a different church background, maybe the word has been used to describe something else. I see some thoughts. Um, so we're just going to acknowledge that that's a different category of demons, and we're going to go with this more historical explanation of the word. We're going to sit in that. So all of this in mind, by mid-morning mid on Wednesday, I went back to the passage at hand, a familiar one to me too, and one that I actually really love as a longer miracle story, and one to a Gentile, no less, um, which is across from Galilee in verse 26. That's a massive hint 
Luke gives us about the weighty significance of this encounter. So with fresh eyes, we're going to look more closely at what the text is saying with this in mind of our Western ways of thinking of how it's used in literature. Yeah. So Jesus and Jesus and his disciples arrived in the land of the Gerasenes after having a wild time at sea. This is right after Jesus calms the seas. And we have that story where the disciples are doubting, they're freaking out, they think they're going to die, Jesus calms the seas. That story has just happened um, right before they got here. And I already mentioned that in verse 26, across from Galilee is a huge indication to us as readers that basically they're not in Kansas anymore. This is new, different territory. This is not their familiar comfort zone. They have left Jewish territory and now are in Gentile territory, which just means anything not Jewish. So the stage is set. Something's going to happen. We know that from verse 26 already. This is different. So verse 27 then introduces us to a certain man who lives in isolation in the tombs of the hillside, naked and homeless. Homeless here in its day also means without community or family, which is integral to survival. It's worth mentioning that in the Gospel of Mark's version, which is Mark 5, 1 to 20, it also says that the man would howl and cut himself with stones. This is a man who is deeply traumatized and in pain. It's someone who scholars agree would today be described as mentally ill. Verse 28 is his interesting response to Jesus, which is to bow down and beg to be spared from even more torture. As a Gentile, he recognizes Jesus instantly, as well as Jesus' power of what plagues him. How? How does he know this? How does he know who Jesus is instantly? And it says that it's the man talking and not the demons. But it would seem that he only recognizes Jesus because the evil spirits do. Verse 29 confirms this because it tells us Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out. And tells us even more about how this evil force has already been attempted to be managed. How the symptoms were attempted to be managed with leg irons and chains which he would break. And the isolation from community for their protection. Verse 30 to 33 is more about the demons. The man calls himself Legion because um, it says, Though an army of four to six thousand live inside him, they, the demons plead with Jesus to not send them back to the abyss that they came from. And all we know about the word abyss is that that's where dark, evil things come from. Kind of like the upside down. So Jesus gives them permission to go into the herd of pigs instead, which then go off the cliff into the lake and drown. Biblical scholar Elaine Heath says that according to Middle Eastern demonology, evil spirits cannot survive in water. And she gets that from Luke 11:24. She goes on to explain that here Luke is telling us that Jesus' arrival, his presence alone, and the good news, the gospel he brings with him, sets in motion forces that will disrupt economic and social arrangements. The good news will not seem good to everyone. And as for the why of the pigs running to their death. Why this violent result? Heath names the fact that we just don't know. It's ambiguous. What's clear is that Jesus freely exercises his lordship and authority over the supernatural forces and over 
the non-human creation, but when it comes to people, he doesn't exercise that same authority. He doesn't exercise that same kind of lordship. He gives us free will, and he honors the free will that we were given when we were created. That's all it really tells us. Verses 34 to 39 are the results of this whole event of the evil, ex, uh, evil forces exiting the men and entering the pigs and then what the pigs did. And this is told from the perspective of the people watching, of the onlookers, who then run away to tell people what just happened in verse 34. And those people come and see what happened. They see the results in 35. What these garrisons see is the man no longer naked or afflicted, but clothed and sane, sitting at Jesus' feet. They're astonished by this and listen to the onlookers explain how the man came to be delivered, is the word in verse 36. These words sane and delivered made me curious about what the actual words were in Greek, just because I don't think they gave us a full picture. Um, so looking a little bit more closely at the first, sane is sophreneo, which is more fully translated as being in the right mind. So insane is kind of a word that we used to describe things offhandedly sometimes, but it can also be a triggering word for some people. Um, so just being in the right mind, being stable-minded, grounded, and maybe other words. And instead of delivered, the NRSV, which is another translation I looked at, uses the word healed, which made me even more curious. Because in the Greek, the word is sozo, which is usually translated as saved, maybe preserved or maintained. The word for healed is usually therapivo, which is where we get the word therapy. So delivered is more true to the Greek than healed, but it would be best to really say that the man who was afflicted by evil, driven to isolation, self-harm, agony, and a loss of ability to take care of his own needs, including dressing himself, has been miraculously saved from all these afflictions. That is the miracle. The onlookers, unsurprisingly, are freaked out. They're overcome by fear, says verse 37. And they also go out, they are also out a large herd of pigs, the economic impact, and ask Jesus to leave. The man who was saved begs to go with Jesus, but instead Jesus tells him to proclaim which is a synonym for preach. They're used interchangeably. He tells him to proclaim his story to his people. We might feel a bit sad or upset about Jesus telling the man no at first. I know I was, but there's two deep layers of beauty to this. First of all, Jesus tells him to go back to his community, to be accepted by them, to tell his story. People are listening to him. He belongs again after being driven away by his suffering. And this is secondary healing. He belongs again. He is restored in multiple ways. Secondly, and even more greatly, Jesus is telling him to preach the good news of what happened to him. And this makes him the first Gentile missionary. This is a very big deal because I don't know if you remember on about a month ago, did I write it down? I think May 15th, Danny's message was about Peter and the sheet coming down from heaven, the vision in Joppa, um, of all the things that are now called clean. And that really marks the point where Gentiles are now accepted into the body of Christ, into the new covenant. Um, Acts 2 and Pentecost, which we celebrated two Sundays ago, the coming of the Holy Spirit is another one of those events. Neither of those events have happened yet. So Jesus 
is already commissioning Gentile people. That's a big deal. There is a new covenant coming where all people are invited to the table to remember this inclusive covenant for all. That's a big deal. So, we know what the good news was for the man who was afflicted by evil forces. A miraculous saving, a restored life, and an amazing new commissioning, a prophetic new commissioning. What's the good news for us here and now today in this place? Zooming out from this story, it's a little easier to see. Right before we had the story of Jesus calming the sea, the disciples are freaked out, they're doing what they can, Jesus wakes up, calms the wind, the water, all of it. And right after this story is Jesus healing the woman who hemorrhaged for 12 years. If you remember it, she reaches up to touch the cloak and she's instantly healed. And Jesus is like, who touched me? And that is kind of an interlude to a bigger story that comes after it of Jairus' daughter who dies while they're waiting for Jesus to come to his house to heal her. And he ends up raising her from the dead. So the point of all these three stories of Jesus calming the sea, the garrison man, and Jairus' daughter with the hemorrhaging woman, the point of it all is that Jesus is Lord. Full stop. Over everything. Over the sea and sky, over everything that afflicts us, seen and unseen, the physical illnesses and the mental illnesses, over trauma, and even over death itself. And note the people in these stories who receive the miracles. The disciples, a marginalized Gentile, and his community, too, they get the good news. A sick and therefore unclean woman, and a higher status citizen's daughter. These miracles are available to everyone who believes, or even just tries to believe. The disciples, but the calming of the sea, are the most doubtful people in all of these stories, and that's worth paying attention to, too. That's a different sermon that we won't get into today. But the ones that are closest to Jesus are the ones who are most doubtful and the ones who doubt the miracle the most. In all these stories, Jesus never criticizes or condemns or discourages how they respond to their afflictions, their fears, or their sufferings. The disciples use the technology of their sailboats to the best of their ability. The garrison men was bound up with chains and isolation and attempts at protecting others. And it sounds like also himself. The hemorrhaging woman saw many physicians, the text tells us. All that was available to them was used to address their problems and all were valid and acceptable. So the good news for us today is that Jesus continues to be Lord of all creation, which God made and called good, including each of us here this morning, everyone watching at home, just as we are. God is Lord of sea and sky, the supernatural, mental and physical illness, trauma, and even death. It is this God who cares for and saves us from the forces which our best technology, medicine, and efforts and therapy can offer. And it's available to the marginalized and the privileged alike, anyone who recognizes Jesus' authority and tries to believe and follow God's way. Just try. So hear me clearly. Again, when I say medicine, therapy, technology, science, all of these things are good. They are good. But maybe, and maybe, as Jesus' spirit shows up for us, thanks to Pentecost, we can also make room for the extraordinary, for miracles. 
It's a both and. There's a third way invitation here. It says that we can do both. We can be scientific mathematical thinkers and we can use what's available to us in the Holy Spirit as well. God gives us the power of his Holy Spirit. Anyone who asks for it, thanks to the new covenant in Christ's death and resurrection. So let's use it. Let's use the science and the Holy Spirit. That's the invitation. That's the third way invitation here. Thanks to the new covenant in Christ. That new covenant in Christ also means that the table in front of us is available for everyone who wants to come and eat. So that's what we're going to trans- transition into now. Um, so when we get to the bold, please join me. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us, has given.